Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Welcome back to Two Guys, One Book. I'm Tim. And I am Brian. And I feel like you usually do that part, so sorry. Um, no, it's whoever <laughs> picks the book does the opening. <laughs> okay. So, you're good. You're good, Tim. All right. We can always edit these. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. This week we read The Great Mental Models, Volume 1, by... Shane Parrish. Mm-hmm. Um, the subtitle is General Thinking Concepts. Um, I think it's one of three volumes, but two are out now, is my understanding. Uh, I thought this I'm was sure. kind of like an open thing where they would add volumes through over the coming years. I don't know. Like the Hardy Boys. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, like the Hardy Boys. Boxcar Children. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why those were the first things that came to mind, but right. anthology series. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, this is uh, Tim's. Uh, non-fiction pick mm-hmm. for this month. Um, why'd you pick this, Tim? So, I am familiar with Shane Parrish's podcast, um, The Knowledge Project. Um, I think his company's called, like, Farnham Street. Uh, I think he's Canadian. I don't know where he got all these terms. Um, but the podcast is pretty good. I think he's a pretty thoughtful interviewer. He asks some good questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I heard about the book that way. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. Um, what were you? What, what are your overall thoughts of the book? Now overall read, thoughts, yeah. I I think it was a good pick. I would recommend this book. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not gonna say it's you know the best book I've ever read. Um, you know, it's not so much that there's a lot of original content. It's more he does a good job, I think, curating these different mental models and gives you a framework for thinking about the world. Okay. What do you think? What's your first well, impression? I mean, I I um, I think these are very condensed uh, snippets about uh, general thinking concepts, which I enjoy. Um, I thought it was maybe a little rudimentary, a little basic. Um, you know, I I was reading some of these uh, sentences in these. Um, uh, throughout these different chapters and thinking like, well, yeah, that's, duh, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> so I kind of felt at times it was a little hand-holding, uh, but I guess for somebody who is, I guess this is for the, the general public that maybe aren't, aren't aware of these different uh, mental exercises that you can do to think about a different problem from a different perspective or, or whatnot. So um, it, I guess it's more for those other people that don't think about these things as often. Yeah, and I see your point, but I think he uses kind of simple sentences and uh, just because it's his style of writing, and I kind of like that because I feel like my complaint with a lot of books is there's a lot of superfluous content, and, you know, I do like that it's to the point. Um, Some nonfiction books we read are kind of abstract, and Mm -hmm. you don't really know what they're getting at, but I feel like this is pretty direct. That's a good point, that some nonfiction books can be... uh you know, get into the weeds a little bit where you're not really sure or you you lose the thread of the original thought um, and maybe they just do that to fill their pages so they have a 250, 300-page book. And that's one thing I liked about this is it is a relatively short book. They, each chapter is only about like oh, like 20 pages, I mean, if that. And um, it has a lot of other side notes and, uh, and uh, sidebar things where they elaborate on uh, different topics. Um, should we go over the book more, maybe more in detail about what the th- thoughts are? Let's do that. I do want to make a quick meta point, which is that 
it's kind of a running joke that I'm like, every book is too long yes. that we read, <laughs> which, you know, that's fair. But also, the more I think about it, it's like, I feel like if you can express something in a short, coherent way, that's a sign of like, you you thought through it, you processed it well, and you communicated it, communicated it effectively. I think sometimes if you use all this extra language and long sentences, sometimes it's just masking the fact that you haven't fully digested something or like you can't get your point across well. I don't know. I mean, this could totally be a cop-out for saying I don't understand some more complex <laughs> books. But, like, sometimes I feel like, yeah, it, it's a good skill to be able to, like, simplify something, synthesize that information, and communicate it in as few words as possible. That is true. I think, I think um, you know, yeah, uh, explaining something to the general public in, like, a fifth-grade re- reading level is always... Uh, not the easiest skill to have, and I think it's beneficial if you want to reach a broader audience mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So I guess that's good. <laughs> All right, we can go through it. It's uh, very high level, but yeah, let's start with the concept. Should oh, we yeah. go through like each one? You want, you want to go through each one, or do you want to just run? Yeah, we can, and and kind of just give our thoughts. Yeah, sure. Okay. All right, I got the table of contents yeah. open right here. Go so for it. first one is the map is not the territory, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, meaning that. A map, is, like if you think about a geographical map, it is a representation of the real world, but it's not the real world. So that's, they, and I kind of like this, this little segment because it's right, like the way we think about the world uh, is like, a, we use like these general thinking concepts are like maps mm-hmm. of what, the, what the, that represent the real world, but it's not the territory, which is how the real world really is. So we have to go back and forth between the map and the territory and make sure that our maps or our mental models are accurate of what the real world is actually like, which the territory is like. Yeah. My favorite part about this one is that it was the first one, and it's almost like a caveat against this whole book, which is saying, here are these mental models and frameworks, but these aren't reality. This is a way of thinking about reality. So it's almost like he's being upfront with a reader about that. Right. And I, and I appreciate that because it, it's, I think they're, they're laying that out there at the start uh, for the reader to know that like, Hey, these are just tools or maps for your, for your thinking process, but not to rely on these, not, not to rely on all these all the time. Right. Yeah. And just to talk a little more about the first one, cause I liked it more than a lot, some of the later sections. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love this book. I read a while ago, a while ago called the tyranny of words, which is about general semantics. And they mentioned this phrase, the map is not the territory, because it talks about how it with like language, we get so caught up in these concepts of like people use abstract language, especially in like um, politics Mm -hmm. or like lawyers or something. And so they'll say something like um, peace, prosperity, but everyone has a different sort of reference point for what that actually represents in reality. Mm -hmm. And the result is ineffective communication or maybe kind of emotional manipulation when people are talking because Mm -hmm. it's these charged words that don't really you know have a grounding in in reality so or they mean different things for different people exactly right right yeah that's a good point too yeah yeah so Um, what book was that again uh the tyranny of words by Stuart chase okay um and then another point in this chapter was he talked about how Badly simplified analogies cause problematic models for like political policies. So, for example, the three strike rule. Mm. Um, there's like the domino theory in communism. Mm. So, like, yeah, three strike rule. America loves baseball, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then it's like it's too simple to like have this policy where it's like 
you committed three crimes, mm-hmm. so you're going to jail for life. When it's like maybe you, there were three very minor vandalism mm-hmm. crimes, and it's like that's not a, a great way to make public policy, right? Right. And right. domino theory, like everyone's, you know, this country's going to fall to communism than this one. So then we overextend our whole international policy, mm-hmm. and then a lot of these countries end up running their course anyway, you know, and it's just. I, I thought those were good examples. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and you like politics, so I, I thought do. you would be you would find those interesting. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, any anything else in this chapter you want uh, to talk about? Not really. I think this would be one of. Uh, well, I like this one, and then I think it tail, tailed off, and then I like the end. So we can go to the next one. Okay, next well, one. yeah, let's jump over. Circle of competence, basically knowing knowing how much you know and knowing what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And where that your circle of competence ends, and where you should maybe, if if it's outside, if something is outside your circle of competence, then maybe you should ask for advice or guidance from a friend or a family member or someone else or a professional, or something like that. So, what is your circle of competence, Brian? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it's like an abstract thing. I think it's just it's it's not so much like knowing exactly where your circle is. It's like I would say it's kind of like VR. When you're when you're in VR and you and you're looking through the visor and you're playing a game, mm-hmm. you you are in reality in a living room or something. Mm-hmm. But in VR, when you're close to the edge of the boundary that you set for that VR, you see like a ba- something pops up in the screen of the VR to tell you, hey, look out, you're close to your sofa or something like that. Yeah, and I think that's what the circle of competence is like. It's like you can't tell where the ba- exact boundary is. Mm-hmm. Uh, on any given day, but when you explore a topic or um, something it, when in your conversations with coworkers or something you're trying to do professionally, um, you almost see a boundary on the edge of that. You see a boundary in the in the in the in the near distance, and you realize that hey, maybe I'm getting a little bit out of my uh, circle of competence. Yeah, I like that analogy. Yeah, um, <laughs> I just came up with it on the spot. Brian looks very proud for for those on the podcast. <laughs> Um, no, I like that. I think this is something I've struggled with is just, it kind of ties into self-awareness and like, here's what I, I'm good at and what I understand. Like I've taken all these personality tests Mm -hmm. and the strengths finder thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's hard to be objective about like, what is your circle of competence? Like, uh, it takes years and years, like he says in the book, like to really build that up that you can trust your, uh, your own opinion on these certain topics. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to trust other people who are experts in their domain, um, not blindly, but just understanding that it really takes time to become like an expert in different fields. Yeah. And people overestimate their ability, oh, I think, yeah. many All times. The time. yeah. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, you want to do the next one? First principles thinking. Um, I forget what this one was about. It was kind of like not taking for granted something that you're told about society or how something works, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. thinking it for yourself. Yeah, more or less. Uh, the note I wrote is that if we never learn to take something apart or test our assumptions about it and reconstruct it, we end up bound by what others tell us and trapped in the way that things have always been done. Mm-hmm. And I've heard this has kind of become a buzzword online, especially in like the tech world. I think if you just search like Elon Musk and first principles thinking, which, uh... you know, ignoring all the other stuff he's involved <laughs> in these days, but like... He, he does, he, I've seen interviews before where he talks about this because when it comes to rethinking like different industries or companies or the way things have been done, you start with the first principles, like here's the reality of like physics and nature mm-hmm. and, uh, whatever. 
And then you sort of work backwards from that as a starting point versus like just taking for a given how maybe society conceives of, um, mm-hmm. you know, how things are expected to be done. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess this one was a little, um, I don't know, I felt like it was a little hand wavy. Like, yeah, just look back. Don't, yeah, don't take what the general, you know, society thinks about something. Go back to like the roots of the problem and think for yourself. And I'm like, not everybody has that skill set though, you know? Yeah. But he's arguing, like, in support of that, I guess. Okay. That's fair. So, one last thing I'll say on this one is, like, I've been thinking more with AI, mm-hmm. like, kind of becoming more prominent. We read a book a while ago about yeah, this, but we now did. we see it, I feel like, more in the news recently. Mm-hmm. Um, someone was talking about how, like, society has these ages, like, the Reformation and the Renaissance and the Industrial Era, and each kind of era is defined by these waves of various, you know, movements, society, culture, technology... And then, um, so yeah, I feel like with the first principles thinking, it's sort of like, we can be so caught up and not see the forest for our trees, depending on whatever era we're in, but it's like, humanity changes a lot over time when you zoom out. So you Mm -hmm. kind of have to like, not take for granted whatever the conventional thinking is today and go back to like, the core Mm-hmm. you know sure core things <laughs> I, I feel like that was a good point oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I could be totally talking out of my butt too so <laughs> wouldn't be the first time yeah first, not at all <laughs> alright what's the next one um thought experiment um I thought I mean like this is something I do all the time I mean so yeah I mean like you do thought experiments all the time well thought experiment like I think he, the author, talked about very specific examples, but I think thought experiments are, um, like, anytime you project into the future about um, what something might happen, or what, what, you know, like, if X happens, then Y might happen, or, I guess this is multiple things, it's also thought experiment and the next one, second order thinking. But but I think I just always um, like in sports like he his example he used was like LeBron James playing Woody Allen in a basketball game, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. But it's like clearly LeBron James would win that matchup. Yeah. But like any sports fan does thought experiments all the time. Like who's better, LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Well, they played in different eras, and you could say, well, if LeBron James played in the Michael Jordan era, he would get he you know he would be attacked even more than he is now because it was more physical back then. And if Michael Jordan played in today's area, he would be, you know, shooting, you know, jump shots all day and making them. And I just want to highlight that sports is one place where thought experiments happen all the time when you're trying to compare and contrast teams and players maybe of different eras. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, One thing, I kind of struggle with this because... Uh, you know, I don't always have a lot of patience for hypothetical scenarios. Mm. And, you know, when people are like, well, what if Germany and Japan won World War II? And it's like, <laughs> well, you know, that didn't happen. So, like, we don't... Like, okay, maybe it's interesting to entertain that and how yeah. a history evolved. But then I feel like people just start making all these assumptions about what would happen. And mm-hmm. it's like the reality is that reality is so complicated that mm-hmm. no one really knows. And then we end up getting this false sense of, like, you know, thinking that this is how things would have played out when mm-hmm. it's... It's not that simple. So I, sure. so that I struggle with. But the one that ties into political philosophy I thought you would like is, um, and I remember this from a college class, John Rawls' uh, Veil of Ignorance. Uh-huh. Uh, have you? Did you remember that? I've heard of that somewhere, I think. I forget the exact details. You can go ahead. And, yeah, yeah, the basic idea is that when you're, imagine you're designing society and how you think everything should be fair and equitable or however, um, you know, you, you think it should be best designed. But... 
the thought experiment is that however you're designing it, you don't know what type of person you're going to come back as. So, um, you know, you could be in this sort of class or race or gender, whatever. But the, so the idea is that you're more incentivized to like design the most kind of equitable thing because you don't know what type of person you would end up being in this society. Right. Which I think that's a great thought experiment. Yeah. Right? Oh no, I, I completely agree. I, I love that idea. And, and it just, I think it's home that like, you know, people should put themselves in other people's shoes because that's ultimately what they're doing, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're thinking if I was to create a society from scratch, but yet I don't know where I'm going to be in that society, then I'm going to want to, yes, like you said, make it the most equitable possible. So um, I think it's, it's just another way to help get people to try to put themselves in other people's shoes, which I think is, is um, a good practice to have for most people. So I like that. Was it a veil of ignorance? Veil of ignorance, yeah. yes. Yes, yeah. that's one thing i got to remember more often. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great example. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, like I said, I think a lot of thought experiments are kind of a waste of time, but uh, maybe I need <laughs> to overcome them, that. You don't, you don't find just, you don't find joy in just thinking about like the way things might be if X had been different or Y or anything it, like that? Yeah, you know, that's the thing. It's something I struggle with. I just think, I think back to like endless debates in college of overhearing people where it's like, this isn't going anywhere. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I could, what if the dinosaurs were still around and like played <laughs> basketball? Like... <laughs> Who cares? I don't know. Like, for me to care about a thought experiment, it would have to be a little more tied into what I care about, I guess. Ah, so, okay. Like, so, what, what's the thought experiment you think would be interesting? Can you come up with one? Um, well, I mean, I like the one you just brought up. Like, what if Japan and Germany won World War II? I think that yielded, like, some very good literature. Like, Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. Or um, even The Plot Against America is not... Is a little by Philip Roth isn't quite that outcome. It's more what if Charles Lindbergh beat FDR in a presidential election, you know, and then that if America was more isolationist in World War II, you know, like I feel like thought experiments can lead to really good literature and movies and all kinds of stuff like that that I think are entertaining. Yeah, that's fair. I I kind of need to force myself to be more open to that i think (laughs) i I guess it shows too history is pretty fragile and you can't take for granted like you know like the democratic theory or whatever these things optimistic takes Mm. on life i mean forrest gump is a thought experiment in a movie in this (laughs) i feel like i've brought that movie up before but in the sense like you know he's involved in all these major political happenings somehow yeah i don't know if that's a thought experiment movie though but um imagine if one person yeah (laughs) had that much had that much impact yeah yeah, unknowingly yeah Yeah. so anyway (laughs) i'll have to think about thought experience ah there you go there you go (laughs) which brings us to ah yes brings us to the next chapter is second order thinking which to me it felt like a little too obvious second order thinking in in what way well, second order th- thinking, the chapter is basically about your decisions have consequences, and those consequences are like ripples in a pond that cause other consequences. So w- no one decision is a vacuum. Like, I mean, anything can happen, and then something else, you know, something good can happen that, or you try to do some good, and then bad things might happen. Unintended consequences are happen all the time. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the butterfly effect where, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings and, and causes a hurricane or something like that. It, it caught, you know, causes ripple effects in the atmosphere to lead to a hurricane or mm-hmm. whatnot. 
And so, or you can think about the movie with Ashton Kutcher. You ever see that? Uh, one? I did see that. Yeah. I like that movie. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a big hit back in the, I think early in the aughts, early two thousands. Yeah, is yeah. it called the aughts? Yeah. I've never heard of that. <laughs> oh, come on! What the hell? <laughs> you ought the not odds. to say that. The odds. The O's. Oh God. The odds. So anyway, second order thinking to me was always just kind of like obvious. Like I know that like my actions aren't you know are. I mean, my actions of just one person are not super pivotal in the world events, but um, I think actions as like a society can can ripple out and have other effects. Yeah. Okay. So I see your point, which is that you know it seems pretty straightforward. Actions mm-hmm. have consequences, whatever. Right. But then, like sometimes there's a public policy where it seems very simple and straightforward, but the public is is generally not thinking about the second, third order consequences, right. the ripple effects. Um, I like the example he gave in the book about like the British, uh, when they were like in India, basically mm-hmm. were paying for dead cobras and, uh, the, right. the unintended consequence was that it sort of incentivized the breeding of more cobras. Yeah. So it's like, and the same thing happened, I, uh, not the same thing, but another example is like, I think Mao in like China's history would like wanted to kill all the locusts or some, not locusts, but there's some animal mm. or like insect mm-hmm. and, um, because it was like killing the crop, but then they needed that insect because it, it like disrupted the whole food chain and ended up leading to like this great famine. Ah, I, huh. I'm, I'm totally butchering the details. Yeah, but no, <laughs> yeah, the no, point remains. Yeah, yeah. Right. I got you. I got you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, I I think the, the cobra one was especially enlightening because you're right. Like if we pay people for dead cobras, mm-hmm. that might lead to other undesired consequences. And if they would have taken a second to think about that, maybe they would have come up with a better policy there. You know, there's a lot of sidebars in the, in, throughout these books and quotes from famous people, but one quote I especially liked was from, Mar- from this chapter from Margaret Atwood. Stupi- stupidity is the same as evil if you judge by the results. Oh, I like that quote. I like that quote a lot because, you know, it also branches into philosophy a little bit here because, you know, uh, some people believe in consequentialism where you're not judged by your your intentions you're judged purely by results mm-hmm. so like that british policy was a bad policy because it bred more cobras or like you think you're trying to do a good thing like you you give candy to your mailman or something like that but then maybe he's diabetic and goes into diabetic shock when he eats the candy so your intentions however decent and good led to a bad outcome so therefore you're ba- that was bad yeah um and i think and I don't necessarily agree with consequentialism because I feel like intentions are worth taking into account. And I think this this um, this quote by Margaret Atwood um, definitely hits hits on my side of the argument of consequentialism because stupidity is the same as evil if you judge by the results. That means if you p- judge purely by the results, someone who does evil, who intends to do evil, and someone who is just stupid or or unintentionally does some something that results in evil, they would be the same. And that's why I don't think consequentialism is, is I don't know, my cup of tea. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree. I think intentions matter to some extent. Mm-hmm. Also, do you give candy to your mailman? Is that something that you No. Do? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've never heard that as a thing. So well, like, yeah, some people do. Or like baked goods. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, because, okay, like if you're an evil person doing evil uh-huh. and you're a stupid person who means well and ends up doing evil... At least the stupid person can like learn from that and be right. like, okay, I'll do better right. next time. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But 
another quote related to that I like is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Ah, yeah. And that ties into like people who are like have the maybe the ends justify the means approach or sort of like I don't know like they have this abstract idea of how they want the world to be and Mm -hmm. then they'll do whatever it takes to like work towards that even if it means like all these morally corrupt decisions to reach that right right? yeah yeah so yeah and so that's second order thinking and then next oh this was one of my favorites ones uh probable probabilistic thinking Mm -hmm. which is something i think humans struggle with because Weatherman is, is a good example of probabilistic uh, thinking. He might say there's only a 30% chance of rain. So people go about their day thinking, oh, it's not going to rain today. And then lo and behold, it might rain where they're at. You know, And they think, oh, that stupid weatherman is no good. When really he said there was a 30% chance it would rain. Now, there was a 70% chance it wouldn't rain. And so people latch onto that more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just think that this, this chapter was a good... Um, uh, it's, a, it's a good one to include in this book because it's important to think about improbabilities a lot. I, yeah, I agree. I think statistics is like very underrated. And it's so wild to me thinking back that we're taught like, uh, okay, so algebra is kind of fundamental to statistics, but like, you know, I don't know, some things like calculus and pre-calc and geometry seem kind of abstract and don't mm-hmm. tie in as much to like daily life as like statistics mm-hmm. which is everything is statistics when you think about it like what's okay. the probability of like you know getting here safely in a car versus a plane considering the weather mm-hmm. the sports government like that's why i think like 538 is such a popular mm-hmm. website and like nate silver statistical analysis is you know used in so many different fields um mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think stats is very interesting and important. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing they talked about was, like, getting struck by lightning. You know, that's that's something that is very probabilistically low. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, uh, there's other things that people should more more be worried about. Or, like, um, it's like that effect where people are more afraid of getting, like, shark attacks. More more people are afraid of getting attacked by a shark than they are of getting in a car crash when statistically speaking they're more likely to be in a car crash right yeah. I guess it ties into like the somewhat modern idea that humans are more irrational than we believe right and that's that whole kind of like behavioral economics right. field that's oh, sort yeah. of sprung yeah. up yeah and I think it goes back to that circle of competence where people don't realize when they're out of their circle of competence humans are always overestimating what, uh, their knowledge of a situation or a problem. But yeah, we can move on to I, the next one. I, real quick, uh, I did put a note here that kind of ties into what you said at the beginning, which is not everything in this book feels that profound. A lot of it kind of <laughs> seems like common sense. Yes, yes. <laughs> so Agreed. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's a fair critique, mm-hmm. but I do overall kind of like the way it's laid right. out. Right. I mean, well, let me just touch on one other thing. I think in this chapter, Probabilistic Thinking, yeah, he did have a, a whole sidebar for causation versus correlation, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting um, because I think a lot of people do confuse the, the, these two terms, um, and I thought that was a good ad- addition to the book. Okay, quick, a couple of things on that. Yeah. Um, first of all, the hardcover book is great in, yes. in the sense there are, are these examples and asides throughout. I think yeah. it's very well designed. Right. Um, <clears throat> and then specifically on correlation versus causation, I took like a data visualization class and this one thing came up called spurious spurious correlations Mm. have you heard of that no it's really funny it's this guy started a blog i think it became like a book at some point and it's basically like these things that are statistically correlated but really have should not be associated with each other so it'll be like 
the number of cakes consumed and the number of people who died in shark attacks or something. <laughs> and it's like just a random coincidence. Uh-huh. But it just goes to say like people do talk about correlation versus causation all the time. But uh-huh. then even if there is a correlation, it's like, well, these are just sort of, uh, it's a random events that are coincidentally aligned. Right. Yeah. Which I think is, is fascinating because like that probably took a lot of research to fi- find yeah. all those crazy little things that might be <laughs> correlated but not right. causated. Well, there's all these data sets online you could probably kind of oh, automate. Sure. But sure. It's kind of interesting. But yeah. I thought that was good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next chapter is inversion, which I'm not going to lie. I didn't really... I felt like this was another chapter where they did a lot of hand-waving and be like, oh, yeah, Florence, <laughs> Florence Nightingale did inversion, and voila, she realized that the sanitation of the hospitals was causing soldiers to die. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, I didn't quite follow that one. Okay, so my notes are here are basically, it just says to invert problems to look at things from opposite sides and angles. Sure. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, that kind of ties into, like, first principles thinking and mm-hmm. second order thinking, a lot of the other stuff. Right. Obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know... We have all these assumptions and biases. Sometimes you just have to be like, what if I just took the opposite stance of whatever I believe and just looked at it completely differently? Mm -hmm. You kind of have to force yourself to get out of your own head a little bit. Which I think is good. And I think that most, a lot of people don't do that nowadays. I think especially uh, as we become more polarized as a society politically and people are like in their tribes and must uh, conform to whatever the tribe is thinking to belong to those tribes that they can sometimes lose that skill of thinking from other points of view. So I guess maybe, I mean, but like that's, that's um, I don't know, I, I view that more in some of these other ones than inversion. Inversion to me is one where you're explicitly looking at, at a specific problem and then trying to flip it on its head, you mm-hmm. know, which... I don't know. I guess you can do in more uh, political uh, um, political stances in, in a country, but not so much in your day-to-day life, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that simple to just be like, oh, here's this crazy, confusing problem. Let's just flip it over. Now <laughs> yeah. we've got a whole new perspective. Yeah, like, yeah. It's not that simple. But. Right, right. All right, next is Occam's Razor, which is uh, if you have something that seems overly complex, and uh, then... It's probably more simple than you think it is. Yeah, that good example. Or what? What's your? How would you summarize Occam's uh, razor? Simple explanations are more likely to be true than complicated ones. There you go. Yeah, there you go. I like this one. Um, I mean, I like this Occam's razor in general, not just this chapter, but mm-hmm. I like it because I am very much anti-conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. I think you know human beings are prone to think that the world is complex and all these intricate webs of secret societies or people are out to get you or out to get a certain group of people or whatnot mm-hmm. when it is just simple like uh, random acts or um, simple things that cause uh, big ripples so to speak so I think Occam's razor needs to be used by more people because I am definitely not a conspiracy theorist and <laughs> and I I, I read a book called Suspicious Minds by Rob Brotherton, mm-hmm. and he, he talks about why we be, why humans believe in conspiracy theories, and I thought it was a very good book. He not just talks about why we can believe in them, but he talks about the like kind of like the history and evolution of different conspiracy theories over the last couple centuries and how they kind of just keep repeating themselves mm-hmm. over and over. And now, like if you look at the news with this anti-Semitism crap, it's still kind of like circling back to, to the Jews are evil and controlling everything. Like, come on, people. Yeah. Yeah. Conspiracy theories, it's like, 
and most of the time it just seems like it's way too complicated and involve all this coordination that is not realistic mm-hmm. and so it's like ties into this principle like the whatever is most simple is probably the reality right. of what's going on right um i also like this quote from there related to healthcare, where medical students are taught uh when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Ah, so yes. it's like if you're diagnosing someone, it's probably not Ebola or something really rare. Yeah. It's probably like the cold, you know, right. most um, of the time. Unless you're Dr. House. <laughs> it's lupus, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> he hears a lot of zebras. Yeah, yeah. It'd be a boring show if it was like that cold true. all the time. That's true. Another common cold. Yeah, yeah. So I like that one. And then I like this last one too, was Hanlon's razor, mm-hmm. which I never heard of this specific razor uh, referred to it this way, but I've heard of Gillette's razor. Oh, good. But Hanlon's razor basically means that, that, um, that people are not as evil as you might think they are. They're not out to get you or anything. They're, they're, if you suffer, um, ill will, Due to the consequences of other people's actions, it's usually because those other people are totally oblivious to you, or they're ignorant or stupid, not because they're evil and they're out to get you, right? Yeah. Yeah, I wrote, uh, we should not attribute to malice that which is more easily explained as stupidity <laughs> by right. stupidity. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, li- I like that quote. Like, don't be paranoid. People aren't out to get you. It's right. just, you know... And this should be another good tool for the conspiracy theorists to have in their tool book so that they can maybe realize that the world is not out to get them or yeah their their tribe or whatnot yeah you know after these two chapters i wanted to uh put out their tim's razor Ooh. which is that just because there's a name and something like razor after it doesn't mean you need to like i don't know shouldn't automatically be held in high regard because there are all these like if you just look on wikipedia like cognitive biases and like thought like things like this there's like the Sabir Worth hypothesis and like you know it's usually just like some European name and some word like theorem razor hypothesis Uh, and then I think as people we automatically attribute some credibility to it and it's like you need to be a little skeptical just because something has like you know what I mean because like sometimes in conversation you'll be like oh that's just Hanlon's razor or that's Occam's razor and then it's kind of lazy thinking because you're just like attribute something to a concept because there is a concept to it. Oh. Tim's razor. Well, you got to use yeah. first thinking principles, right? To to get dive into the details and not just assume that, you know, those razors and, and theorems are accurate, right? I, I agree. But I think but I think it gives people a shorthand, you know, like the to it you can't, you know, like you got to give you got to label like there's so many uh, complex uh, social, psychological um, and other uh, ideas out there that if people do think of them or you know want to reference them they got to have be named Daniel Kahneman has done so much stuff for behavioral psych, uh, behavioral economics and stuff like yeah. that so that you know the, you know people can talk about him but like he's done so a broad spectrum of things so you have to talk about specific things that he's done you know whereas like I feel like if you name something you you, you give it a shorthand not I get what you're saying that like if you name something like Occam's razor, Hanlon's razor, or some other theorem or hypothesis or something, you, you do there does there is a sense of credibility to it that maybe isn't always uh, applicable. But I think I, don't know, I think they gotta name them somehow. Yeah. Okay. That that's a fair counterpoint. Okay. But I think I'm just saying like it, it's lazy thinking if you just 
people will point to that and end the discussion there. Right. You know? Yes. They they use it as a cudgel to, to beat their interlocutor with over the head so that they can <laughs> end the argument or win the argument, so to speak. But you're right. Like it, it's it's more complex than that. And after reading this book, you should realize that, right? Okay. But yeah. So I mean, overall, I mean, this book was okay. I mean, I guess I was, I didn't really maybe enjoy reading it all the time because I felt like there were some times when I felt like they were kind of stating the obvious or or, um, just kind of doing some hand waving and saying, yeah, yeah, of course, you know. Um, But um, I think it's good. And then in the afterward, I did did think he made a note to to say that like this is just a book to have on your bookshelf that you can you can pull off and 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 use as a guide whenever you need to think about a problem from a different perspective or or use these general thinking concepts in your day-to-day life and so that you um you know so it's more of a reference than it is you know a end-to-end book that you must read you know or or, or it's more of a reference than a book you must read end-to-end yeah i agree with that uh it's not going to be for everyone, but for me, I kind of like when people pull different ideas together and synthesize it and give you that high-level overview. So it's it's yes, catered to do. people like me. It yeah. is very much catered to people like Tim. <laughs> yeah, and maybe not so much Brian, but that's, but that's okay. <laughs> for all the Tim listeners out there. Would you change anything? What would you change? <sighs> that's a great thought experiment. Um, <laughs> let me think from first principles here. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I would, you know, to your point, it's a little hand wavy sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think the more examples he could have used, the better. I liked when he pulled in different concrete things to like put this, um, tie this into reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's probably some other principles he could throw in as well. Um, some of them were a little too similar almost sometimes that maybe first principles and second order could have been combined into one. Um, you know, there's mm-hmm. minor things, but honestly, I, I think it was pretty good how it was. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like he could have gone in more depth. I would have enjoyed it a little more in depth. Yeah. But I, I get it. It's more of a quick read, more of a, a like we said, reference book. So it's not so much a uh, in-depth study of each of these general thinking concepts. Um, I'm interested that it's volume one of like a series. Um, like, I mean, I'd be curious to see what the other ones are like, but... I don't think I'm going to actually read it. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Hey, I'm glad we gave this one a try. No, I yeah. We had a I, good discussion. I think, I think this is absolutely a unique book um, with a, uh, uh, like you said, it synthesizes a lot of uh, good ways that people should think about their problems and maybe, you know, maybe it'll help other people yeah. out, out there in the world. So that's good. So I give them kudos for that. Rating time? Rating time, sure. Uh, you want to go first? I, I can go. I'll, right. g- I'll give it a four. All right. Um, you know, it could have been better. Could have been worse. Yeah. I think it's worth a read personally, mm-hmm. and uh, solid four for me. Okay. I'm actually gonna give it a two. Ooh, yeah. big gap. That's a big gap. Because <laughs> like, I must admit, like maybe it was just my mindset when I was reading it, but like it was, it was a chore for me to pick it up because like, until I got to Occam's Razor, which was like the second to last chapter. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I like probabilistic thinking, so like there were. Like, I was reading the other chapters to get to the ones I wanted to read. Mm-hmm. Because, but like he said at the end, you could just read any, you know, you could read half the chapters. You don't have to read it from end to end. Yeah. So I think that's the better way to approach it is like, just get the book if you're curious about just what these different thinking types are. Mm-hmm. But for me to have to read it through, 
it was not as pleasurable as I was hoping. That's fair. Because it was, because for me it was just a little on the surface. I yeah. wanted. I, I I'm very much a, a depth person. I appreciate the deep dive. Like I said, I read that whole book about suspicious mindset, why we believe in conspiracy theories, and I loved it. So I like the deep dive into a, like any one of these. I could read maybe like a whole book on Occam's Razor. Yeah, maybe you know something like that. But but like you said, this book isn't for me, or it's for more people like Tim. Yeah, which is good. Uh, just shallow guys like me. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> no, but you can use this as a reference point. So like, yeah. uh, like different sections will speak to different people differently. Mm-hmm. And so if you're interested in yeah, um, Occam's Razor, then you can find a book on that. Right. And then yeah. it, it's a good starting point to right. like go more deep right. into other. Right. Agree. Yeah. Agree. So. And yeah, and if you, and if you like other science um, ideas, maybe check out the next book. Yeah. You know? Because, yeah, I think he's, you know, like, like you said, I think he does a good job of, of breaking it down to the basic level to, so, so it's accessible to anybody. Yeah. But just not my cup of tea. And, and check out his podcast sometime. It's yeah. good. Sure. Knowledge right. Project. Shane Paris. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Well, good, good pick, Tim. Thank you. Yeah. And it was a short book, too. So it made Not made too difficult easy. to read. No, yeah. Not too <laughs> but I think it was good to have the hard copy because I had all these notes and sidebars and whatnot. Yeah. So that was good. But... Definitely better than the audiobook, I'd say, for this one. Uh, What's our next book? Our next book is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America by Alec McGillis. Okay. It is a book about Amazon, but it's not a history book of Amazon. It's a hit piece. (laughs) One could call it a hit piece, but it's uh, it's a Brian pick, so if you're a fan of Amazon, maybe... maybe, uh, Fan it. Amazon. <laughs> Even if you're if you're a fan of Amazon, you could tune in next time and hear hear me rip them a new one. <laughs> oh boy. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. But anyway, Should so yes, again, check out our website twoguysonebook.com, all written out twoguysonebook.com, and you can tell me how uh, how much I'm full of crap because I don't like <laughs> Amazon. But or you can save that for next episode. But anyway, until next time, keep reading. <laughs>